anti-black attitudes? Are they a threat to health equity in the U.S.? Yeah, so what we were really interested in, you mentioned the Affordable Care Act earlier, and that was what we were trying to unpack a little bit is about why white people are so resistant to the passing of the Affordable Care Act. I mean, this policy was obviously very controversial. You know, it barely passed through Congress. Um, but the amount of times that Republicans have um, attempted to repeal this policy is really uh, notable. And so what we were trying to understand is what is it about the Affordable Care Act that is so um, infuriating to white people uh, in the United States. And so what we measured was looking at anti-black attitudes um, and their relationship to um, kind of projecting the ACA or wanting the ACA to be repealed. And what we found um, is that uh, white people are most critical of the ACA um, when they hold kind of these negative stereotypes or more implicit attitudes uh, about Black people's work, work ethic and kind of other negative qualities. Um, and we actually did a kind of a similar study looking at um, other kind of race-based policies such as uh, affirmative action or other things that are like clearly racialized in the United States, um, discussions up in the United States. And what we found is that white people really interpret the ACA in similar ways as they interpret affirmative action policies or any other kind of policy that's been framed as race-based. Um, and so we argue is that people kind of saw the ACA as, as kind of a handout in just the way that you were talking about earlier in terms of this kind of mythical American dream and this idea that there shouldn't be any kind of special favors afforded to anybody in the United States, um, particularly not uh, racial groups that are seen as, as having a number of kind of negative qualities. And so that's exactly what we found in the study is that we, we kind of summarized that, um, yeah, that people reject the ACA because they see it as disproportionately helping black people and that white people feel that's unfair, even though white people have a lot to gain from the ACA. I think we've seen this in other areas, too, including in COVID-19, that white people will vote against their own interests if it means protecting um, you know, their own kind of racial identity or to ensure that uh non-white people don't receive what they perceive to be kind of special favors from the government. Even if it means I'm compromising my own health, my family's health, that pales, and I'm using that deliberately, pales in comparison to helping the so-called outgroup the non-white people. That's how I'm processing that. That's the only way, again, that I can that it can make sense because I'm not I'm not protecting my group by keeping them uninsured. That's not protection. I'm, I could die, and that some white people have. I would rather die than support Obamacare. Get my funeral arrangement. Like what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hear you. I hear what you're saying, and I agree with that. I, I think there's also some aspect of protecting your in group by ensuring that the out group stays, um, you know, have, stays in less power, and that means keeping people sick. And some people of your own in group are going to suffer as well. If the you know, overall negative outcome is, is greater for the outgroup, then then people may support that, even though there's going to be there's going to be a hit taken in the end group as well. But I hear what you're saying, and I agree. System of racism, white supremacy, determined to survive. 
be cows. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the global system of racism. Uh, today's date, Monday, November 13, 2023. So I have been told I uh, should be here again on Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Same broadcast uh, time. Uh, we'll be discussing education. Uh, specifically we talked about uh, Prince Edward County in Virginia a number of times over the years where they deliberately, they being white people, deliberately closed schools, public schools for five years uh, because they did not want black children to go to school with white children. Uh, they have uh, since established uh, scholarships uh, as a form of compensation and acknowledgement for this, I don't know, pretty flagrant act of racism, but we'll, chat about all of that how that's gone uh wednesday 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific uh our discussion for today was started to a degree uh we had a listener we were talking hmm, just a couple weeks back uh they've been having a number of different reports about the closures of pharmacies uh throughout the u.s rite aids cvs's and devastating impact. I mean, hey, all of this is happening within the context of COVID-19 allegedly, I guess, being over now as a global pandemic, so they tell us. All of that is happening in the context of major health problems, and they've been talking all this about health disparities, particularly for non-white people, people classified as black since 2020, uh, basically. Uh, And so, hearing about these closures of pharmacies Many of the reports uh, from right here where I am in Washington State and beyond talked about the impact of these pharmacy closures on black people, non-white people in total uh, throughout the country. A number of listeners saw this and like, wow, I mean, aging population that comes up in some of the research we'll discuss today as well with aging population, sickly population, like, oh my gosh, this is, you know, horrible for so many reasons and I specifically had audio talking about these closures I gave the national and then even drilled down for me specifically in Washington state where they're talking about how this is a huge they had news reports talking about how some residents right here in western Washington 30 miles to the nearest pharmacy that's not even you know including gas prices and all the rest of it, but 30 miles. I was going to include that, but I stopped because the Affordable Care Act is mentioned quite a bit on some of the reports we'll review today and in this whole discussion about, you know, pharmacies and how they are compensated and expanding Medicaid. Obamacare, as it's affectionately known, gets mentioned quite a bit and That conversation that we had with medical sociologist Dr. Berkeley Franz, uh, and that was basically not even a year ago, she spoke with us, University of Ohio, and talked about, man, all this white resistance. That's what they called it in Virginia when they closed the schools. All of this massive white resistance to Medicaid. And she attaches that to, hey, we do see this to our own group interests that even if some white people will die because we don't want Obamacare, we would take that as opposed to giving medical handouts. 
to dark people I think that is extraordinarily important to process all of this if that's in the backdrop that should yeah be a part of how we think about all this unless I am in error uh, our guest for today's broadcast she was cited in a number of the reports talking about these pharmacy closures uh, and the devastating impact that it could have on health of U.S. citizens, particularly black and non-white citizens. Uh, our guest to discuss this really important subject matter, uh, she's currently serving as the Hygieia Centennial Chair and Associate Professor with tenure in the Titus Family Department of Clin- Clinical Pharmacy. Uh, she's also been appointed as a senior fellow with the University of Southern California, Go Trojans, Leonard D. Schaefer Center for Health Policy and Economics. Real pleasure to have her on the program to discuss uh, some of her great work, hopefully get some better understanding of all of this as we move forward. Joining us live, uh, our guest, see if I can get the pronunciation accurate, our guest, Dr. Dima Mazin Cato. Dr. Cato, are you with us? Yes, I'm here. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing a bit of your Monday, I guess for you, West Coast afternoon still. Is that correct pronunciation, Dr. Dima? Yes, you did a great job. Okay, awesome. Awesome. Uh, For listeners, this might be maybe they don't read the paper, so they haven't been reading what you've been talking about in the papers about the pharmacy closures. Uh, Can you give kind of a, a brief description of the research that you do down at USC? Sure. So, you know, we um, study pharmacy access more generally and pharmacy deserts. And what we found was pharmacy deserts, so communities that have a hard time accessing pharmacies, are more common in um, Black and Latinx neighborhoods across the country. Um, and more recently, the problem has getting, is getting worse because of all these pharmacy closures. Uh, that are actually more likely to affect these same neighborhoods. So not only are they pharmacy deserts, um, but, you know, with these closures, access is is getting even worse because when pharmacies close, especially when um, pharmacy chains close, you know, they often close in low-income neighborhoods, um, disproportionately Medicaid or Medicare neighborhoods, and frequently in black and Latinx neighborhoods. So which are the same neighborhoods that already suffer from poor access to pharmacies um, and poor health outcomes and poor medication adherence. So when we ask the question, you know, why are there disparities in health and disparities in medication adherence? You know, you know, I became interested in this work because I um, thought that there was a role the pharmacy access place. You can't get really prescriptions um, unless you have access to a pharmacy. And what we found was, you know, many of these neighborhoods, many of these people that live in these neighborhoods have um, limited or inconvenient access to pharmacies, which contributes to non-adherence, which then could contribute to poor health outcomes and health disparities. Uh, spectacular. We'll dig into the details uh, of of some of all this, how this connects to uh, racism. I guess before we get to that, your credentials specifically. So are you a medical doctor? So I'm a PharmD and I'm a PhD, so I'm a professor. Okay, okay, okay. And a PharmD for us lay folks, uh, what what is a PharmD? I'm a clinical clinical pharmacist, Mm -hmm. yeah. 
And what in that as a clinical pharmacist, what do you do? What I so before I got into academia, right now I'm on, I'm a professor, mostly do research and do teaching. Um, but I used to practice across communities in the country. I actually used to practice in uh, various retail community pharmacies in Chicago and in Baltimore. Um, and you know, this is where it's actually you know while I was doing research, studying my PhD, and practicing in the community, you know, a lot of of this. Well, what I saw, especially when I was working in some of the more lower-income neighborhoods in Chicago, um, you know, I learned a lot from the people there in terms of, and of pharmacies in general, how sometimes, you know, medications aren't in stock, how when they're not in stock, you tell a customer, hey, you know, you have to go to another pharmacy, and they tell you, well, I can't go to another pharmacy, it's too far. Um, and it made me realize that, you know, what we really think we know about patients and why they don't take their medications is very limited. And there's so much um, to learn from the communities they live in, in terms of what they have access to and what, how hard sometimes it is for some people to actually travel to their nearest pharmacy. So when you have a pharmacy that not just doesn't have a medication stock, but then closes, um, you know, it's it's really detrimental because sometimes it's, it's they can't really go somewhere that you're telling them to uh, because it is far, um, especially if they don't have a car or they don't drive, so they take a bus. And now there's no bus route that really stops by this other pharmacy that the, all their prescriptions were transferred. Mm. For listeners who were with us this past weekend. Whew. Deja vu. It feels like we were just having this conversation, except we were talking about grocery stores. We were. Mm-hmm. Uh, anywho, with uh, you being a clinical pharmacist, well, one, uh, are you, Dr. Cato, are you classified as a white woman? Um, depends on what classification system you use. I'm Middle Eastern. I'm Palestinian American. I'm an immigrant. And, you know. I may look white. I'm white and blue-eyed in terms of phenotype, but um, I don't think I have the white privilege that non-Arab Muslim women that are white have. So, you know, take your pick. I can be white or I can be black or I can be brown. Mm, Well, that's, wow, that's fascinating. I would have to dig there. Let's see. Uh, Here in the, well, what part of the world were you born? Let's see. I was born in Tuskegee in Palestine. In Palestine. Okay. Okay. And you immigrated here? Yes. I okay. immigrated to Chicago when I was two. Wow. Okay. Wow. That's wacky. <laughs> wow. So you went to school here? You grew up your formative years here in the U.S.? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Do you have a U.S. Uh, citizenship at this point? I do, of course. Yeah. Okay. Okay. What's on your... Uh, Information here in the U.S., they have legal documentation, like they take racial classifications really seriously. What's on your, when you mark forms and such, what box do you check for racial classification? That's what I mean, yeah. So sometimes they don't have, so they have white, including Middle Eastern, and I mm-hmm. check that. I have no other, um, but, you know, sometimes they have Middle Eastern as its own category, and if that's there, I usually check that. I am aware that they do have, they talked about that quite a bit after, well, they probably were before, but I'm just aware it became a big deal after uh, 
911, the attacks uh, back in 2001, uh, that which Middle Eastern Arab that that is here in this part of the world, that's on the census as white. Uh, and mm-hmm. I guess there had been some effort to change that prior to 9-11. And then some people, it wasn't as boisterous after 9-11 and all that. But anyway, that is that also on the census. We've talked about that before. You said that you... You said, I will rephrase just because I don't use the term privilege, uh, where in my view, we're talking about power dynamics and such, but you said you don't think you have access to so-called white privilege. Do you, is that, am I to interpret that as you don't think you are routinely accepted as a white woman? Well, it depends. Well, so I wear, I'm Muslim too, so I wear hijab. Um, I know this is so you can't, so I don't, um, so there's stereotypes and there's some biases and I counter racism sometimes in different encounters. Um, and for that reason, you know, the privilege of being a woman, an other is, is a non, you know, white person isn't really there, even though I may look white and I have blue eyes in terms of my skin color. Do individuals classified as white, do they ask you like, some of those those questions that are kind of hinting at race, even though they don't say it like, oh, where? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, like, where are you from? Um, or are you a convert? Or A convert? Wait, uh, wait a minute. What is that one? What is that? <laughs> oh, like, you're, you know, you're like white American, but you're wearing a scarf because you converted to being Muslim oh, or something. Oh. Yeah. Um, and the other, because I have an, you know, uh, American accent, so it's hard to, be, to believe that I'm actually an immigrant. Um and I get things like, oh, don't think you're a minority, so you don't have any advantages. You know, so I get these weird passive-aggressive microaggressions uh, occasionally, but they don't phase me anymore, you know. Hmm. But I think in general, you know, it's, it, uh, it varies. You know, there's cases, for example, when I used to practice retail pharmacy where I would have people say, we don't want you to. I, had, I remember this, this gentleman, he was probably in his late 60s, and he didn't want me to fill his prescriptions for him. He wanted someone else. And I had to tell him, well, I'm the only pharmacist on duty, so I can only, I'm the only one that could fill it for you. And he basically, like, threw a pen or something at me. And, you know, we had to call security for him. Uh, or I had another guy. I mean, so there, there are some encounters, but, you know, I'm sure others have, outside of academia, kind of, Academia is a little bit more protective and you don't encounter as many episodes, at least I don't. But I think outside, depending on where you work and where you live, you know, you could, um, I know people that maybe live in more rural parts of the U.S. that are not as diverse as L.A. and Chicago that may encounter more episodes of kind of racism. Wow. Okay. Was this to your looking at the person who threw the pen at you didn't want you to fill this prescription was this someone a, a dude classified as white who did this oh yeah yeah this okay. is yeah it's usually um white whatever you know i don't know it was a white male yeah in his late 60s hmm, fascinating okay and, yeah. the name as well that gave me because i was looking at your photograph uh, before we came on, I was like, hmm, I'm not sure. Uh, I have to we ask all of our guests anyway, but have to ask, see what she says. I'm not sure because I said the name, too, would give me pause. That's not, hmm, 
<laughs> would be I would be at the same spot as many of the other folks. Like, where were you born exactly? Yeah, like, people what? assume I'm Russian or um, like my last name could be Japanese. It was with a K. So it's a little good. I guess it could be confusing. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, for listeners, take a look at her faculty page. What do you think? Uh, fascinating. So I guess for make sure we don't have, because you did say take your pick before. Do you classify typically non-white person? Or is there any time where you classify as a white woman? Well, again, right. It's when you say classify, like someone asks me where I'm from, I say I'm Arab, <laughs> I'm Middle Eastern, I'm Palestinian. But if I have to check a box, those boxes are already pre-specified, you know, um, and they, if it says white, including Middle Eastern, I check white. I mean, that's what I'm classified as. But if you tell me, you know, if you ask me where I'm from, I'm, I'm going to tell you I'm Arab and Palestinian. Hmm. That's my identity, right? And Palestinian American. Hmm. Fascinating. Fascinating. Having to work my brain computer. That's great. I uh, just what she just said. I'm talking to a white woman born in Palestine who is classified as Middle Eastern Arab. Would what I just said be accurate? Uh, probably for most people. Yeah. For, for you, what I just said, is that accurate? Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it could be a contradiction again. I mean, it, it's, it's accurate. And in, so far as, I mean, we have all these classifications and categories, right. That we're trying to put people in. And I think for one, I'm, not in favor of this kind of simplistic view of racial ethnic identity. Um, so, you know, it's hard for me to say, yeah, I accept it, but I do. I mean, that's what I checked off and that's what I say I am. Right. So yes, I would agree in this day and age. Um, but maybe a white woman would tell you, well, she's not white, or maybe I'll tell you, right? I don't feel white. <laughs> you know, I don't, that's not my ethnic identity. I may phenotypically look white, but if white means European, um, I'm not white. If white means, you know, what color my skin is, even though it could be different than other Arabs maybe, or, 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 uh, you know, it's, it's just, um, it's a difficult question to answer. And actually I've never really asked it. Uh, so, you know, I guess it's part of your program to ask us. Um, but I think that's why we're so obsessed with race in this country. And, uh, and I think there's reason to, um, but, you know, we're trying to group people into categories. And it just makes us, I think sometimes it divides us more than it unites us. Thank you for indulging me, Dr. Cato, uh, just it, particularly for the discussion about the pharmacy closures, pharmacy desert, so-called. I think it's the racial classifications are very important, important part of your data. You, you know, explain non-white, white, all of that. Thank you for indulging me. Um, just my next question so that we can get to all of that and try to make sense of it racism white supremacy just for listener listeners these aren't gus's classifications and it's not even gus's obsession with racial classifications even though we do start our programs asking you know are we talking to a white person non-white person 
That's important, I've concluded, because we are in a system of white supremacy racism. And racists say these classifications are important all over the world. We just had so many guests on from South Africa and the land of honorary whites and all that foolishness and past uh, programs. And just had our guest on from Australia where they had a white-only policy literally talking about mm-hmm. veterans day where they had black soldiers coming to fight against adolf hitler and whoa 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 whoa, mate can't send those niggers over here to melbourne like whoa i know we got this hitler problem and we're pretty close actually to the japs too but hey <laughs> whites only policy down under global system we also start out asking all of our guests i use the term racism and the term white supremacy as synonyms I use the same definition for both terms. That definition is a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated Mm -hmm. to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white do you think such a system exists is that an accurate definition so uh, you know i'll have to kind of i think there is definitely a system of white supremacy um whether if i understood your definition correctly whether every white person is actively part of that system you know i'm not sure um I mean, that's part of implicit racism and bias and all that, you know, uh, but with that definition, then I'm definitely not white. <laughs> so, um, but I, I do, I would agree that it's all, it's, 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 um, goes back to colonialism, right? Colonialism from just historically and what we see even in the Middle East sometimes, right? There's this, um, glorification and it's it, of whiteness. Um, that's a result of white colonialism in all parts of the world, right? You don't just see it in the Middle East. You see it in the U.S. for sure in different ways. Uh, so it, it does exist. Racism does exist. And um you know, unless we, you know, try to dismantle it from its kind of root causes, it's really hard, challenging to overcome as individuals. It's really in how society is structured and how policies are made to promote um, kind of privilege among whites. And yet, like, I mean, I think you were talking about like Medicaid expansion before um right and there's criticism of it i mean expanded insurance but it did it narrow disparities in health and access and quality and you'll probably surprised to know that not really right so what does that tell you um that a lot of these policies in the u.s aren't always targeting uh non-whites in terms of improving their health and access to care, including pharmacies. 
including pharmacies. Um, I just the the accuracy part of the definition. Um, I even noted that's interesting because my definition doesn't say that every white person is participating in the system, what have you. Um, we also had more usage of the word privilege, which I don't use, in fact, discourage the use of. But I didn't really hear if you thought the definition was accurate. I'll give it again. Just I know it's long just so you can think on it. A global mm -hmm. system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's an accurate definition? Racism, white supremacy. I, I mean, I think I think so. It's a little very. It's, it's kind of um, definitive, you know, like all and every, and so that's the only reason why I, I, I hesitate a bit um, because there could be exceptions to the non-whites you're claiming are the goals of subjugation of these white supremacists, um, and I'm not sure. I have to kind of think about it, and you know, if that's always the case. Um, because it also depends on who's white and who's not. So it's not as binary as I, I think, uh, at least kind of this definition that you've shared. It, it could be, but it could be not. I, I'm not sure. I know one thing, I would be overjoyed. Are you overjoyed? Are you aware of any individual who is classified as not white in the universe who is not subject to racism meaning hey pfft, white people white people I do what I want go where I want I don't have to worry about them doing anything to me anywhere in the world do you know any non-white person who functions in that manner I mean I don't personally know I mean there are I, I uh... You're making me think about topics that, you know, just um, are really important to think about mm -hmm. in a kind of abstract, abstract sense. So I, I appreciate that. Um, I mean, I don't. <laughs> I mean, even people in power that are non-white, right? I mean, they're still subjugated in many ways. Obamacare. So, mm-hmm. What do you mean Obamacare? Uh, well, I jokingly said that it, the Affordable Care Act is affectionately known as Obamacare. Obamacare. Uh, yeah. in, in fact, they have data. Berkeley Franz, Dr. Berkeley Franz, medical sociologist, she uh -huh. said they have data. If you want white people to support the Affordable Care Act, do not call it do not use Obamacare. <laughs> Wait a minute, that's the president, <laughs> Negro. And I could have just went the easy route and said, wow, didn't he have a historic number of death threats while he was in office? Yep. And I mean, they've had white people who they claim, man, you stole, you cheated the election and all of that. And they didn't face that type of threat to life and liberty that President Obama yeah. did. So that would be one of the Obamacare. That's what I said. That, and that they tried to repeal, I forgot, like 50 times. That yeah, be. yeah, yeah, yeah. If it was, I read that. I don't know if it was from the same author, but I, yeah, there was. There's a lot of um, 
um, discussion around that term and what when to use it, you know, when you're speaking with certain kind of um, politicians. You want to make sure you don't use Obamacare. You want to call it the Affordable Care Act or call it something else, health reform, something more generic. Yeah, you're right. Um, I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's racism. Yeah, that's white supremacy, right? Like anything that's, you're all kind of subhuman, right? Um, you don't deserve the benefits that we deserve because you're not white. Um, so. That's why my definition is so all encompassing. And we already included, like, I don't know any locations on the planet either where you could go and this wouldn't be a problem because we've talked to so many people from all over the planet. You said Palestine. My goodness, that's a major part of what they're talking about right now. So that's why. And definitions I thought were supposed to be definitive. Mm-hmm. So we don't have confusion. Any hoodles. Uh, this is I can't, incredible for so many reasons that at this moment we are talking to a clinical pharmacist. I guess question one, do you know the demographics of your field? Like how many, what yeah, percentage yeah. of clinical pharmacists are non-white? Yeah, that's a good question. It's not a large percentage. I think that's something that we're struggling with. Um, I mean, I think it's probably around 15% or 20% max. I'm not sure. Don't quote me on that. But I know it's, it's, a, it's a small, it's a it's suboptimal, and it's a reason why, you know, people say that some patients don't trust sometimes in certain communities, non-white communities um, or neighborhoods where a lot of the non-white patients live, um, given segregation, you know, they don't want to go or they don't feel comfortable going to a pharmacist that's white. Um, Like how a white person didn't feel comfortable going to a pharmacist like me, right? (laughs) It's kind of reverse roles. Um, But they're racist. In this case, the patients aren't. (laughs) You know, they just want to feel trust and they don't feel trust because of racism. Um, So there needs to be kind of an expansion. There's a kind of to encourage more uh, students to get into pharmacy and even the medical profession in general um, to expand the workforce to include more um, kind of non-white professionals because there is a lacking for sure. Mm. Deliberate history of keeping black people out of that profession. Um, I get with the pharmacy component, I mean, because of what I just said, there's such a a detailed, documented history of white people deliberately making sure that we do not have black doctors uh, globally, even. Uh, I don't I've known a lot of black people, unfortunately, who've had to go to the pharmacist. I've never Mm -hmm. heard a black person like in my life say, you know, ooh. Do they have a black? Let's, we got to drive down the road because they got this white pharmacist and he might mess over me. I don't, I'm tired of these. I've never, I mean, it's, no. there's so few black pharmacists, non-white pharmacists, as you just said, like, if you don't want a white pharmacist, you might be out of luck for your medication. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they end up going and, you know, um, but are they adhering? Do they get the questions answered? Do they even ask questions that they should ask, Right. Um, do they feel comfortable asking certain questions? And that's kind of the trust component that that's, could be important, not just with a pharmacist, but also with um, a doctor, you know. And we know that when there is a, there's research that's shown that, you know, when a pharmacist is of the same race or language, like, you know, 
of the patient, they're more likely to take their medications appropriately and be adherent. So we know there there's that component. But yeah, maybe they'll still fill them, you know, um, but will they fill them, fill their medications and adhere to their medications um, or not? You know, that's, I think, where the problems may arise. For sure, for sure. Um, before I get to the your report, pharmacy deserts are prevalent in Chicago's predominantly minority communities, ra- raising medication access concerns, some of what we just talked about even. We are reading James B. Stewart's book, Blind Eye Currently, uh, which is about Michael Swango, totally different conversation. But he briefly mentions the Tylenol murders, which happened in Chicago, 1982, uh, as a Mm -hmm. clinical pharmacist. Are you familiar with that case, the Tylenol murders? I am, yeah, I remember, yeah, 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 I remember that case. I mean, I mean, I don't remember it. I was probably five years old when it happened. But I know the story. Um, I'm trying to. There were there was some over unintentional overdoses, right, with Tylenol that was given to. Trying to remember exactly what happened. Contaminated um, tablets. Cyanide, contaminated. Yeah. Killed seven people. Yeah. Yeah. Seven. Yeah. 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 Changed. And they were all were they all black? Were they all like all white? Like, what were? All white. all white, but sent a panic through the city. They ended up recalling all of the Tylenol. Oh, they had to get uh, the, they have video of police going through the Chicago Housing Authority uh, projects and telling black people, you know, you got to hand in all your Tylenol and ma- it's unsolved to this day. <laughs> I never even caught the person who did this. Really? Um, it um, t- totally changed the way that we do medication and dr- that, yeah. that's why you have to do that grapple with the bottle and all th- that case right there. Uh, they even, they showed pictures of just regular Tylenol at that time. It is amazing. Like you could just walk in the store and boop, cap pops off and none of that. Gra- mm-hmm. Not even that long yeah. ago. This is like 1982. So this is not ancient yeah. history. And yeah. Matt, I didn't know anything about this case. We just started reading this book, and they mentioned it. And oh, yeah, amazing. Anywho, uh, the report that I just mentioned: pharmacy deserts are prevalent in Chicago. We talked so much about Chicago this year. Number one, just that term. I've heard food deserts, and we just talked about those. When you use the term pharmacy deserts, what do you mean, Doctor Cato? I mean, similar to the food desert definition, but it's a neighborhood level kind of designation for um, neighborhoods that where most households, most people live more than a certain distance away from their nearest pharmacy. And um, that distance is one mile or half a mile if the neighborhood um, is low income and the majority of households don't have at least one um, private vehicle. Uh, so if, if most, um, households have to travel more than half a mile to the nearest pharmacy, it's considered a pharmacy desert. Okay. So this is based on distance that you have to travel to get to your closest Mm -hmm. pharmacy. Uh, and I guess for the same, I don't know if you heard it or not, but there has been, uh, some recent, I think, pushback against the term food deserts, uh, where some scholars have submitted that uh, deserts are naturally occurring phenomenon, food deserts are not. This is an intentional depriving or disinvestment Mm -hmm. 
uh, in particular areas where black people, mm-hmm. non-white people reside, would the same logic be true for pharmacy deserts yeah. that yeah. this is intentional and very deliberate? Oh. So uh, agree 100 percent. Yeah. If you're going to use the term, you know, desert. Yeah, that's a natural phenomenon. And I think in our cases, it's not natural to not have access to essential resources, whether they're, you know, healthy food or or pharmacies that provide um, prescription prescriptions and other um, healthcare services. So um, in, t- in terms of intentionality of <laughs> pharmacies not opening and closing in these kind of non-white neighborhoods and therefore creating pharmacy deserts and pharmacies closing more in those neighborhoods than others. You know, it might, I mean, I, I don't know if it's intentional, but it's designed. It's, it could be negligent. It could be just, So the way I kind of think about it in terms of just structural racism in health policy in this context is that we have these policies in place that promote, you know, pharmacy access in certain white neighborhoods and um, discourage or promote pharmacy close, discourage pharmacy access or, you know, promote pharmacy closures in non-white neighborhoods. Right. And whether so there are policies like Medicaid policies, Medicaid pays very little for prescriptions filled at pharmacies. So um, and then Medicare pays also little commercial insurance pays more, pays pharmacies more. Right. Um, So these are federal or state policies that are enacted and implemented in such a way that they basically lead to pharmacies closing in non-white neighborhoods um, or pharmacies not even wanting to open, right? Um, And, you know, I just talk about the reimbursement part, but it's also things like, you know, for a certain Medicaid plan, insurance plan, you you can only go to certain pharmacies if you don't want to pay, have a copay. The same with Medicare and same with some commercial insurance. Um, and oftentimes those pharmacies in what they call networks, pharmacy networks, aren't the pharmacies in these kind of non-white neighborhoods. They're not usually the independents, right? Um, so they force patients living in these non-white neighborhoods to travel even further than they would have traveled. They're already in pharmacy deserts, but they actually have to travel further. So our, even our definition isn't it's an underestimation of the problem because it assumes your nearest pharmacy is a pharmacy you can go to, but that's actually not the case. Oftentimes that nearest pharmacy, especially in non-white neighborhoods, is a pharmacy that you really can't go to to fill your medications because it's not in your network if you have insurance. Um, so, you know, whether these policies are intentionally racist, you know, it's hard to tell, um, but if you're operating under a framework of white supremacy and there's this kind of motivation to uh, prevent progress and disinvest in people and communities that are non-white, then perhaps. But in terms of just the research and the evidence, what I could tell you is the policies are not really helping. They're actually contributing to the problem. They're what we call the fundamental cause or the root cause 
of these problems that we're seeing, whether it's pharmacy closures, pharmacy deserts, or frankly, health disparities in general. Context of white supremacy. Again, our guest, Dr. Dima Cato, joining us live, clinical pharmacist. Don't know if you've ever had one, someone with that, uh, in that career field on the program before. Um, I appreciate the detail. We got the, the distance again, right? If whatever your, your health plan is, Medicaid, or if it's private insurance, whatever it is, uh, that the pharmacy that's in your network where they will reimburse you, yeah, maybe it's close to you. Maybe it isn't. Maybe it's on the bus line. Maybe it isn't. Maybe you can carpool to get there. Maybe you can't. And black people, non-white people, being much more disparately impacted, adversely impacted by all of that. But when I say the little deliberateness, that's one where there's frequently pushback from people classified as white, our guest included. Mm-hmm. There generally is pushback on this. Why well, I point to the evidence is kind of overwhelming. And one of the other ways that I generally submit that white people practice racism deliberately they minimize deliberate choices, behavior mm-hmm. of people classified as white that produces white supremacy racism as a global system, particularly with health care. When they, she said structural racism, Dr. Cato, I've said for years that along with white privilege, all of this minimizes, these are euphemisms uh, for racism, mm-hmm. white supremacy as a deliberate act and specifically structural racism that makes it, as she, that's the term she used earlier, that makes it abstract. That makes mm-hmm. it as though they're just laws and things that have been written. And eh, but that's not the case at all. And I would just, it's so I could pick your work, which I'm going to do. But man, the foreground would be, do you know who J. Marion Sims is, Dr. Cato? No, I don't think so. Okay, he's. He's not a pharmacist. He is the father of gynecology. They have statues uh, to him in various places, although they did remove it from Central Park not too long ago, but it took years, I think decades of protest. Mm -hmm. But he experimented on black female slaves uh, on their vagina and just did really horrible medical mutilation of them. Uh, Harriet A. Washington talks about him in her book, Medical Apartheid. He has been Mm -hmm. revered by white people for years and years. Over a century, long period of time, like I said, until recently for them to take down his statue uh, in Central Park. But he has other statues in Alabama, South Carolina, father of gynecology, J. Marion Sims. They had trophies and statues and such with his name on it. But this went on for years where he was worshipped, glorified, as she said before, by white people. That's the foreground yeah. for all of this medical racism, although it's lots of things that I could have picked. Uh, they love Tuskegee. That was mentioned recently. It's lots of things I could have picked. Yeah, Henrietta yeah. Lacks. It's lots of things that I could. You went to John Hopkins. Isn't that true? Yeah, I got my MPH there. Yeah. Did yeah, you hear the rumors about John Hopkins experimenting on black yeah, people? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's so yeah, many yeah. things that I could have picked. It's, did you hear any? Yeah. Was there any substance to those rumors about them experimenting on black people in Baltimore? Of course, yeah. I mean, I think so. I mean, I wouldn't contest them. I think they're all true. I mean, it's not news, right, that black people um, have been abused in the medical system in so many ways, uh, including with Henrietta Lacks, right, at Hopkins. So none of it is, at least from my perspective, 
um, disputable. It's all kind of unfortunate, but it does happen. And I think the medical racism piece, like this, I mean, that's, uh, that's deliberate. Those are clear, deliberate exact right, of people knew what they were doing. Um, I think to your point about structural racism being like a euphemism, a cover-up, if you will, of uh, white supremacy and racism on a global scale, right? Um, it could be. You know, I won't, I won't tell you it's not. I just don't know enough, frankly. I mean, I'm, I'm a health policy, health services researcher. I'm a pharmacist, epidemiologist. Um, but I am also kind of aware of the context and I study health disparities. Uh, and, you know, I, I think, uh, unfortunately part of the work that I do and people like me do is, you know, we, we, uh, and it could be a reason why it's hard to support a claim like intentionality because we need kind of evidence to support it with our body of work. And when I, I, you know, I remember when I first presented this work to actually a room full of white men um, many years ago, and the first reaction was like, so you think, you know, you know, pharmacies, pharmacy organizations are racist. That's why they're not opening in, you know, black neighborhoods in Chicago. And I'm like, it's not about whether they are or not. Right. Um, You know, what they're doing is racist. And how many years of data do you need to show that every year there are fewer pharmacies in black neighborhoods in Chicago and all over the country? You know, when Rite Aid announced it's closing and then CVS and well, I mean, even independence, um, you know, when they announce these kind of mass closures, you think they're going to close in a white neighborhood where half more than half of the population has commercial insurance? They won't. I mean, it's not a good business decision, as they would say, right? Um, And then what's even more racist is they're blaming theft. For me, I mean, that's where the racism comes in, right? They're not blaming their closures on they're not making money, right? Because they're getting, they're not getting paid enough by Medicaid because most of the community maybe has Medicare or Medicaid um, and they don't get reimbursed as much as they would if you go to a neighborhood where there are more people that have commercial insurance. So you see a lot of accusations um, based on just a few incidences of theft, right? Uh, and I hear that. I mean, when I publish some of this work, even, uh, you know, it, I, there's some, sometimes I get emails of people saying very racist stuff that these neighborhoods are closing because these black people in Chicago are killing themselves and it makes it unsafe, you know, to keep pharmacies open. And I'm like, seriously, and I mean, obviously I don't respond, but that's, you know, that racism you're talking about? Yes, it's there, right? And, um, you know, intentional or not, it could be, you know, I just can't honestly with confidence tell you it is, at least in this case of pharmacy closures. Um, It could be intentional from a global system perspective, like everything's designed in such a way where these decisions to close pharmacies are, you know, a function of a larger racist, white supremacist nation and and world, perhaps. Um, But what troubles, I think, me the most is 
that some of this is preventable through policy. And that's why, you know, I'm interested in it. Because if policy doesn't change in favor, then I can prove there's some racism going on here, intentional, right? Like, hey, you see the damage is caused by policies at the state or federal level, yet, um, you know, there's no effort or limited effort to change them, um, to improve equity uh, across communities. Uh, and, and pharmacies are interesting because they're part of the retail business sector, right? Um, they're not often put into public health, unfortunately. So they often escape responsibility and aren't accountable to um, some of, you know, when you're trying to improve health care, um, you know, they're not part of that discussion. At least they weren't for many, many decades. Um, and I think now, especially after COVID, people realize that having a pharmacy really matters in terms of access, right? And they're telling people, go get tested at, at, a, at a drive-thru, um, but not realizing that most of the pharmacies in certain neighborhoods, certain black neighborhoods, including in cities like Chicago, don't have drive throughs So that's right, right? So, so people weren't getting tested. Um, and so, you know, I think trying to solve, you know, it, it helps sometimes to break it down in ways where you can at least try to address the problem. And I guess that's where what I try to do um, as a professor, as a researcher, um, is kind of identify ways where we can reduce, even if racism exists, Let's promote, let's make sure people know that they're racist, whether it's policymakers or um, certain organizations uh, or pharmacy, you know, pharmaceutical companies, but try to prevent it as well. So promote accountability, but also try to prevent um, or mitigate or modify these policies in a way where they actually promote equity and not um you know, inequitable access to pharmacies and health. Hmm. The context of white supremacy, our guest, Dr. Cato, I was uh, snickering there to her response because she was talking about the closure of these pharmacies in Chicago. And I thought she was going to say that she got these nasty emails where they were saying, you know, theft is a big problem. You can't have a store open if people are coming in and stealing all the merchandise. Blah, blah, blah. That's what I was, you know, waiting on her to say. But she didn't say that. She said that you can't have stores open. The black people are out killing each other and black on black. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, people were emailing me telling me that I'm blaming, you know, policymakers and pharmacies for closing when I shouldn't. Right. That I should be, you know thinking about why they're closing because of course, you know, it's not safe. Those neighborhoods aren't safe. There's a lot of, there's thieves and, you know, they're busy, you know, with gang violence. That's what the reference is. Um, so that's racist, right? They're racist. Whoever these kind of, I had at least two kind of emails in the last several years like that um, or comments in, in online, whatever uh, of the ones I read, I don't really read them as much um, now, but you know, that's kind of, 
the environment, right? You're talking about white supremacy, racism. That's at the individual level what people think, right? It's always blaming these black others. Old, black that, crime. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, hey, they deserve it. Why should we get them pharmacies? They're just going to burn them down. I had someone say that. Mm, mm, and with mm. the, you know, with some of the, during some of the George Floyd protests and um, in Baltimore. Oh, Freddie Gray. Mm. Freddie Gray, yeah. There was, you know, some, some, a lot of pharmacies closed. They were mm-hmm, burned, mm-hmm. right? There was, so, you know, that, people are not real. you know, like it was just kind of inverted in such a way where they're blaming the victims again right of racism um and forgetting about why this all happened you know so i i think there's definitely racism out there even in this context of pharmacy closures you know they're either blaming theft or blaming the community that they didn't know how to handle a pharmacy in their neighborhood um so which are you know i in my, from my perspective one racist but also untrue in terms of why stores close. Mm. Hey. That is important as well. I was just going to even when you were responding just now and you said that they forget why why did this happen to begin with in Baltimore with Freddie Gray and being upset about his death, <laughs> Marilyn Mosby just convicted, um, that I don't think this is a forgetting per se. There just is a lack of concern, empathy for Freddie Gray, people classified as black in general, both with Freddie Gray or George Floyd and or closure of these pharmacies. And even with the response that you said when you're giving some of your research to white people, pharmacists, you give them the data. You've got these pharmacy deserts, so-called, and black people have to drive really far distances, non-white people. And they say, uh, you saying we're racist? And you give response like, well, the result is it doesn't really, you know, matter uh, if you all are racist or whatever it is, but we're just trying to solve this problem. I think they're just doing the logic uh, of any what I said, J. Marion Sims, Dr. Martin Luther King. He said Chicago is the most racist city he's been to where all of the experiences that he had in the South assassinated in Tennessee. In fact, even Beryl Satter was a guest on our program she talked about the housing white supremacy in Chicago for decades. Her dad owned slums where they warehoused black people. Same thing that you even have some of the research that you uh, reference: black people having to pay exorbitant rent for slums and then being robbed and thrown out where they don't get any of that money back. They don't have any housing or what have you, where that is all the context for where this is happening. Where now these same folks don't have pharmacies. And we didn't even mention the pollution aspect. Just, I wanted to read the one part from your report where you talk about the uh, difference with regards to white people that are low income in comparison to Mm -hmm. black people, because I think this is so, I had to change my highlighter color. I think this is so important because so many times I hear people say that it's class and poor white people. And I have to always emphatically as loud as possible, courteous, but that is totally wrong. The data shows this over and over and over and over all over the world. That is not true. Uh, You write, this is on page five of your report. Pharmacy deserts were clustered primarily on the South and West sides of Chicago in segregated black and Hispanic communities. The one mile deserts are almost exclusively in segregated black communities for a list of the communities affected and their economic demographic characteristics, see appendix of Chicago's 
802 census tracts, 32% were pharmacy deserts, 230 of which were half-mile deserts exclusively, 25 were both half-mile and one-mile deserts, and four were one-mile deserts exclusively. Approximately one million people live in pharmacy deserts, and 53% of these people live in segregated black communities. 5% of the 227 segregated white communities in Chicago were pharmacy deserts. In contrast, 54% of the 287 segregated black communities were pharmacy deserts. In addition, 34% and 29% of segregated Hispanic and integrated communities respectively were pharmacy deserts. Black at the bottom again. We also examined pharmacy deserts within low-income communities to determine if low-income minority communities were more likely to be pharmacy deserts. Compared to low-income white or integrated communities, we found that proportion of pharmacy deserts was significantly lower in low-income white communities. 30% compared to low-income black communities 58%. Again, I thought that was so sad. In fact, I would even submit that sort of data right there. This mm-hmm. is not class. This is deliberate mm-hmm. racism, white supremacy, because you don't even treat poor white people like that. Is that logical, Dr. Yeah. Cato? Of course. That's exactly why we did that. I mean, there is that argument. Well, it's not because they're black neighborhoods. It's because they're poor neighborhoods. Well, no, that's not true, because when you look at poor white neighborhoods, you know, they're better off. So that's exactly why we did that analysis to kind of dispel that myth that it's not because they're black um, and it's not because of segregation. It's because they're poor. Well, no, that's not true. And, you know, the same actually you see when you even restrict to Medicaid, right, Um, communities. You know, even even when you look at uh, among Medicaid or the same kind of insurance coverage, you see the same gap persistently. Um, and even in, in our research around pharmacy closures, after you, you know, everything else being equal, income, age, neighborhoods, insurance coverage, um, even the number of pharmacies serving a neighborhood, black neighborhoods, and to a lesser extent, uh, Latinx neighborhoods, were always more likely to experience closures than white neighborhoods, regardless of everything else. So there that's I mean, that's racism, right? Um, if it's there's something about black neighborhoods, especially that um, discourage investment and, you know, that leads to closures. It's not because there's theft. It's not because um there's more crime, even though that could be part of the reason for some very few pharmacies. But we're talking about on a national scale, we see this pattern. Uh, so it, it's it's definitely more than um, these unique kind of one-offs that happen in some communities. There's a, a pattern of racism when it comes to pharmacy access across the country. That's getting worse. 
over time. It's not getting better. Which is ominous with an aging population in this part of the world. Uh, we talked about that just last week for a number of reasons. Can you share with listeners? Because you also included when COVID nineteen hit, and they were talking about you know you got all of it really uh, the importance of health and taking care of yourselves, get a mask, everything else, and then the vaccines came. So go to your pharmacy, get your COVID vaccine, and all that. Uh, and you were saying not only with the pharmacy deserts but even the type of services that are office that are offered in areas where black people in particular live. And you talked about how they have less likely to have 24 hour services, less likely to have drive through, which you had mentioned before, less likely to have immunizations, uh, where yeah, and even yeah. less likely to have home delivery where all of this, you know, even if yeah. you do have the harm pharmacy, maybe you can access it. Maybe you can't. And when you do, it may not have the service you need, right? So, yeah, we did, I mean, we did some of, we did show that too. So it's not just there are fewer pharmacies um, and the pharmacies that are there are further away. It's that they oftentimes are not providing some of these convenient access services that make make the pharmacy more accessible, like a drive-through, like a 24-hour um, store or some of the clinical services like immunizations. Um, or testing, point-of-care testing. And uh, that was, I mean, kind of amplified during COVID because everyone was told to stay home, use the drive through to get your medications, to get tested. But who does that even recommendation, right, that guidance from the, from the federal and state governments, who does that apply to? Who could actually do that, right? Um, that's one. And it's the answer is not really people living in some of these pharmacy desert neighborhoods that are some of these black and Latinx pharmacy desert neighborhoods, because they have to go to the pharmacy because maybe the pharmacy doesn't have a home delivery or if it does, you know, um, there's a charge or it doesn't have a drive through, which we found. Right. Uh, so, um, and it's not open 24 hours. So they have to go before a certain time period. So all these inconveniences make it really hard to take your medications, to get immunized, to get tested. And with COVID, you know, I would argue because you're not getting tested early um, and later not getting vaccinated, uh, you know, it could contribute to preventable COVID infections and deaths. Even I did not know this until I started reading your work. I had to look at the footnotes. Uh, full disclosure, this is not, unless I misread, this is not Dr. Cato's work. But she does cite this uh, in her research. Variation in drug prices at pharmacies are prices yeah, higher looking. in <laughs> are prices higher in poor areas. I was stunned. <laughs> like, what? Yeah, See, this is another yeah. one. Or I would come back to the deliberate, like, wait a minute. And I've heard this before, what I just said with Beryl Satter, where black people have inferior quality housing, but they have to pay three, four times as much for it to see the same mm -hmm. pattern. They talk about that with groceries as well, inferior produce, but you have to pay way more medication too in black areas. They're having to pay oh, more. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that paper, actually, we, we did some work on that, um, not in Chicago, but in some other in Philadelphia for some other products, but yes. So the, the way, so in these for pharmacies in low income neighborhoods um, that are mostly 
publicly insured, if you're going to pay cash, so this is cash price, right? So if you have insurance, it's your copay. And the copay, if you're going to a pharmacy in your network, like I said, should be the same, right? But what we're looking at here is um, the copay will be higher if you go to a pharmacy that's not preferred and not in your network. So that's one. But two um, is if you compare drug, the same medication at a pharmacy in a low-income neighborhood in the same city like Chicago or even in L.A., you know, uh, and to the, the, the same ca- to the cash price of a pharmacy in like a higher income neighborhood, you would be you would find in most cases that it's much cheaper in a high income neighborhood. And I think some what I hear anecdotally is that some people know this kind of they figured it out. Um, so when they can, sometimes they if they don't have insurance, they travel uh, to these higher income neighborhoods to if they have to pay cash. So that's definitely true. Again, another, you know, factor in terms of the access to medications. You know, it's not just pharmacy access. Uh, it's not just insurance. It's also if you're not insured, which we know about, what, 20% of the Latinx population, I think, or maybe even more, and 11% of the whites uh, of the black population as opposed to 5% are uninsured of the white population. So they're paying more for the medications, you know? Um, so it's just, it's not only harder to go to a pharmacy, it's harder to pay for the medication you need. So it's like everything is so much harder for a non-white sick person living in a non-white neighborhood in the U S that's really the conclusion of my work. Um, and it's getting, getting worse. worse. <laughs> yeah. And it's getting worse with these closures, with with the networks actually being more close too. So by that I mean there's fewer pharmacies that you could go to to actually fill your medications. Um, you can't. Uh, so, and then on top of that, you know, pharmacies are closing. Um, and I think people always argue saying, well, you know, they can always use mail order. That's the solution. And, you know, that's the most racist solution that I, I hear. People don't know, I guess. It's racist, but it is. Right? Like, why, why is would that you racist? Expect, well, why would you expect, for me, it's like about equity. Like, why would you expect uh, a black person living in a black neighborhood to have to use mail order and not have the option or choice to choose to use mail order versus a local pharmacy? Right. The it's inequity in terms of options and opportunities for people. Um, one and two, mail order is not a pharmacy. It's a mail order. You get a prescription in the mail. You don't get everything that a pharmacy has. Right. Which is services, a pharmacist. Um, another and other essential items that you can get at a store at a pharmacy. So it's promoting kind of. I think disinvestment in these neighborhoods where they could just use mail order for their drug. They don't have to have a resource, a pharmacy resource in their neighborhood because it's too expensive and it's, you know, uh, underperforming is the the business reasons given um, or it's not profiting. Right. So that leads to, it perpetuates just this problem of 
disparities in pharmacy access, medications, and health. Um, and then we wonder why health hasn't really improved. Health disparities haven't really improved. And as long as they've been measured, I think, in at least two to three decades. So, uh, and pharmacy is an important part of that because they provide medications uh, and medications are, are key for many conditions to improve survival and health outcomes. So if you can't have access to them, if you can't afford them because you don't have access to a pharmacy, then you're more likely, you're less likely to use them and therefore benefit from them. So the benefits, the people that are benefiting are disproportionately white people living in white neighborhoods in this country. Hmm. Do you think all of the reports, whether it's true or not, I don't know, I haven't counted, but there's so many reports. There seems to be so much focus on uh, reported dwindling population of whites, or at least a dropping percentage of the country being classified as white in this part of the world. Do you think that is contributing to the closing of pharmacies? Um, well, if it aligns, I haven't looked at it, frankly, empirically, but if, if you're, if we're saying that there's more, non-white racial ethnic groups in this country. Um, I mean, it could, it could be if it, if it leads uh, to less of a reason, right, with immigration and everything. It could from a systems level for sure. Yeah. Right, with more uninsured people. I'm just trying to think of like, um, I think, I mean, I think at, at, a, at a large level, yes. Um, but I think part of it is just really trying hard to target, you know, these higher income, commercially insured white people, mostly white people, um, and improve the care they get. That's what I think is driving, at least for these chains. So when, you know, a large chain is closing 200, 300 stores, that doesn't mean they're not opening any and they're not expanding their existing stores. They are. And those existing stores that are expanding or opening new ones are oftentimes in um, higher income white neighborhoods. Right. So whether those same neighborhoods are kind of becoming less white, you know, I don't, I don't know that's the case. Um, I just know that they're being targeted to improve the type of care and the quality of care they receive at a pharmacy um, at the expense of closing kind of a full service pharmacy in another neighborhood that probably needs it more. Mm. Much obliged, Dr. Cato, before we uh, don't want to take up your whole or evening now, six after six. Yeah. Uh, folks have a yeah. quick question they want to get in before we let Dr. Cato go. Star six, one, my last two, one. We talked to one of our guests last summer and she said that you know, they could have uh, subsidized grocery stores here. That could be one solution to some of these so-called food deserts. And I was stunned. Like, what? Wait a minute. A subsidized grocery store? And she said, yeah, they have such a thing in other places. No reason that they couldn't have such a thing here. Is that possible? Could they have subsidized uh, yeah. drug stores here? So, good question. so there's, I mean, there's state and federal uh, funding for op what they call like opportunity zones to encourage development. Um, 
And, you know, I don't know exactly the rules, but I remember when I was doing this work in Chicago, um, it was pretty, you know, they had what they have tax increment financing. So they give incentives for large companies, retailers. In this case, um, it was CVS to basically open up a store in an underserved neighborhood. So they gave them like two million or three million dollars and CVS opened. This is just an example how sometimes it works, but it has, to, it, has, it has to be improved. It has to promote accountability. So that CBS opened, I think, in a West Side neighborhood in Chicago that was um, predominantly black. And, you know, within six months of it opening, an independent pharmacy that was there for at least 30 years closed for the first time because it took all its business. And then the insurances preferred included CVS as a preferred pharmacy in the network and you know, just talking about racism, why it's And that CVS, a year and a half later, closed. Wow. Okay, and it didn't have to pay back anything to the city. There was no accountability. And it basically profited from the city, right? So, you know, I mean, Chicago, maybe there's, there's, we tried to dig into it. We weren't able to access much of the information we wanted in terms of the details of the contract, why there was no accountability. There was no uh, agreement where they had to stay a minimum of a number of years or whatever. So some cities have them. I know there's a federal opportunity program, development program, but I don't know who's eligible for it. Um, I think for I think we have to be a large company or a retailer. So some of these large pharmacies may be eligible, but I, I'm not sure. Um, but there was a healthy food financing initiative right? That was done. That was through Michelle Obama um, that supported the opening of healthy food stores or maybe farmers markets, or I don't know, um, through some funding, federal funding. Uh, You know, again, with pharmacy, it's part of like a business slash healthcare system that's so fragmented um, without getting into you know, too much detail, but it's, you know, I I would wonder how fair um, and transparent a system, like I just gave the example in Chicago, would be that would provide financial incentives, basically, for pharmacies to open. But I think if done well, it could help for sure. Hmm. That's, that is rather depressing, uh, that illustration. Um, mm. Yeah, and that pharmacy, that neighborhood, for example, right, I gave you the store, became a pharmacy desert. It was, it was happy for 30 years. And then the CBS took advantage of this, you know, tax incentives. And then two years later, it closed. But in that time period, it also forced another independent that was willing to stay open. It was open for decades, but it was forced to close by a CBS that, probably knew that it was going to close in a year and a half or two years. Right. But it opened anyway. Deliver that. See the same way where you looking at this, just trying to study, looking at patterns, using logic, using your brain. I think they might've intended to do this from the beginning. That sort of intention. That sort is. I can't prove it. I guess my point, you can think about it. Like I suspect, right. Right. Speculation, Mm -hmm. but I don't have, and I wasn't able to access any documentation that would prove that, right? So I'm just trying to 
what's defensible and what's not in terms of intentionality. It's hard to prove, but yeah, of course. I mean, a lot of this may be intentional. You know, I'm not doubting the intentionality in that sense. I'm, what I'm, uh, I think, um, saying is that it's hard to prove the intentionality beyond just the evidence that we see and uh, trying to show how it's racist, like, hey, Medicaid, what you're doing is damaging disinvesting in black neighborhoods to stop doing it. Otherwise, it's discriminatory, discrimination, it's racism, Um, and then offer a solution that would kind of reverse or mitigate those patterns. We're trying to repeal Obamacare. We're not trying to do that. Uh, Last one, uh, (laughs) who do you think is more informed about racism specifically in the pharmaceutical industry, the research that you do, access and pricing and all of that, do you think white people are more informed about the racism in all of this, how it works, or do you think non-white people are more informed? You mean like in academia or in general? In general. You know, I don't think, I I, I, I mean, I don't, so what I, even, you know, when I did this work in Chicago, I was working with some community organizations People even didn't realize, because this is the problem with racism, that they're basically having to travel far for their pharmacy needs, um, whereas the, their neighboring north side white people neighborhoods didn't. I mean, there was lack of even awareness in the black community in Chicago that this is a, a problem that really almost exclusively affects them and some white west side neighborhoods. So I think part of the work initially was to improve awareness of like, hey, most people don't have to travel this far, just so you know, this is not normal. It's only affecting certain neighborhoods and it's affecting your neighborhood. Um, so, and, and then white people would say, oh, we don't, pharmacy deserts are not a problem. There's like one on every corner. So I think it's a problem that um, only those that experience see it and believe it. Uh, and it's, you know, it's mostly these non-white people living in non-white neighborhoods. Did I hear that correctly? You said that when you started this research and such in Chicago, that the non-white people, black residents in Chicago, South side, super segregated, they didn't realize that it was just us that were having to travel all these miles to get yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It became an issue when a lot of the pharmacies started to close mm. and it became very acute, right? Like, oh my God, where are we going to go? So, you know, as a local professor, I was contacted by a few people like, hey, we, we saw you on the news or we read your paper. Like, is there something we could do? And, um, but, you know, according to my data, my research, I mean, they've been living in pharmacy deserts for 10 years. It just got worse with the closure, oh, really. So they didn't, and that's, that, that's racism, right? You don't even know when you're being gypped. You don't know when you're experiencing, you know, and, and this is why I have issues with some of, some of this health equity work around resilient communities and all that. I mean, why should a community have to be resilient? You know, um, why should it be so hard emotionally to access care? Uh, but 
Uh, I mean, 100%. Some of these neighborhoods, I mean, the neighborhoods, at least on the south side, that I was mostly working, they didn't even realize it. It was like normal, you know, to take a few bus, take a few buses to get your prescriptions filled. Wow. Uh, wow. I learned a ton, uh, Dr. Cato. Uh, yes, thank not, you. Nothing, uh, I don't know, didn't leave me inspired, but I would much rather have accurate information about what is happening on the wor- in, the, in the world than to be uh, yeah. confused and false optimism. Uh, we talked with uh, our guest live from USC, O.J. Simpson, uh, Dr. <laughs> Dima Mazin. Cato, uh, clinical pharmacist. First time we've had one of those on the program. Wow, did I learn a ton. Thank you so much for sharing a bit of your Monday evening. Keep up the great work. Hopefully we chat Thank again. You. It'll be something uh, more optimistic uh, next time. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. Thank you so much. Thanks for Thank having you. me. For sure. Take care. Uh-huh. Bye. Context of white supremacy. Man, I... I had a totally different, maybe I'll play it now. I'll do it that way. But I had a totally different audio segment to begin the program uh, this evening. I I, I mentioned it already, right? Uh, I was going to play because this was so current. I literally was just speaking about all of this with one of our listeners, black female, uh, where she had been talking about fire departments where black people reside closing down and then same sort of lame excuse. Oh, we don't have taxes and you know, Negroes will smoke crack and shoot up the fire department. Anyway, that type of thing. We got, remember the Opelika three, see, see, they said that sort of thing. So they were closing down fire departments and I was like, dang, like that's what is that? What? So you, we're, we're closing fire departments, closing pharmacies. We don't have teachers but we got fentanyl and recreational cannabis on every corner. WTF? I mean, come on. Like, what What about that sounds constructive, improvement, better? Why is it that we can get a dispensary, but we can't get a drugstore? Anyway, we were chatting about all of this, and they were quoting Dr. Cato in, uh, they had, that one, they had many reports about all of this. They Even today, I posted it before we went live, the Philadelphia Tribune just did a whole report about all of this, I think about two hours before we started our live program. Drugstore closures would make pharmacy deserts even worse published four hours ago so that was probably around 2.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time uh, for Monday November 13 and they got a picture of uh, the right age he meant that already was mentioned on the broadcast today um, but we've been talking about all of this in that sort of context this is the type of thing if you're an attempted counter racist parent serious about procreation hey do we even have a drugstore here Pampers, that sort of thing might be important. Hopefully nobody needs a prescription hoping for health. Eat our uh, veggies and such, right? Not eating all the ice cream and chitlins this holiday season. Not trying to eat every apple cobbler we see. Doing our best to stay healthy. But I mean, yeah, do we, before we, you know, get to making this job, do they have a pharmacy here? Fire department? (laughs) 
hospital even they were talking about that too like man lots to process before procreating uh we'll take quick commercial break see if folks have thoughts what they heard do they have pharmacies where you live we'll see quick commercial break we'll be right back let's see Oh, wait a minute. I'll play the intro that I intended to play at the beginning, and then I'll make sure I, why did I not play this? But this is what we were supposed to start with today, context of white supremacy. After it was all over, it was just lines of black people, you know, with, with, with uh, the little food trucks coming around, all like that, trying to get some water, trying to get some milk. Young black girls out there. My grandmother have to have some milk. You know, my grandmother got to have this. I mean, you know, she got to have her medicine. Ain't no drugstores around here. You know, how she gonna get her medicine? I'm trying to get these prescriptions filled. The white supremacists knew that. Today, CVS announcing it is closing 900 of its more than 10,000 stores. The remaining stores will fall under three types, sites dedicated to primary care services, health hub locations, and then, of course, the traditional pharmacy stores. News Nation correspondent Tom Negevin is live for us. So, Tom, explain for us, why is the company making these changes? You know, it's a changing times, uh, changing business model. Very noisy, busy Manhattan. Maybe a bad example of what we're talking about, but we're talking about nearly 10% of CVS's brick and mortar footprint across the nation. We don't know where stores will close, i.e. which ones. It doesn't start until next spring. It's a dramatic shift that reflects our changing way of doing business. Drugstore giant CVS says it's been evaluating changes in population, consumer buying patterns, and future health needs to put the right kinds of stores in the right places. The chain's CEO calling retail stores fundamental to our strategy and who we are as a company. But... I think what they're doing is going a little further down this blended path. That's exactly what CVS is doing, refining its store offerings and its business model, a strategy that's worked very well for other retailers, analysts say, as more Americans do more shopping online or using a hybrid model, ordering, then picking up. The Darrington Pharmacy is operated here in town for 106 years, but it won't see 107. It's closing permanently this Friday, one of many all across the country. This is the worst one we've had. It's a prescription for trouble at Darrington Pharmacy. A note on the door telling customers the place is closing permanently. I have a prescription that's due, like, Friday. Mike DeLuca has been coming here for nearly 50 years. Very disappointed that we won't have it available for emergencies and that kind of thing. Customers will now have to travel all the way to Arlington, 60 miles round trip to pick up their prescriptions. It's just like unheard of to not have a pharmacy and the closest one be 30 miles away. It's just, it's gonna be very difficult for the, the community. Pharmacy tech Amanda Cochran says one reason for the closure is slim profit margins due to pharmacy benefit managers, or PBMs. Those are middlemen who control which pharmacies operate within each insurance network, the terms of those deals. They even charge pharmacies to participate. It creates cases where drugstores are paying more for the medication than they're selling it for. You're not getting paid enough for medications that 
some of the big pharmacies have contracts that can afford those losses. Small town pharmacies can't. A University of Iowa study found over 1,200 independent pharmacies closed between 2003 and 2021. That's more than 16%. Across the country, at least 630 cities have no drugstore at all. If you really need me to, I can pick it up and give it to you Sunday morning. Darrington, the latest well, drugstore right desert, a friendly pharmacist offering to deliver Mike DeLuca's medications after this place closes its stores Friday. Many here will now have to depend on friends to pick up their prescriptions. Some may have to go without. Bye, Mike. Okay. Take care. Bye. It's going to be hard for the community. Really hard. A bill was introduced in Olympia this year that would have given the insurance commissioner more authority and better regulated PBMs. However, that bill failed. Its sponsors, though, say it will be reintroduced in the next session. In Darrington, Eric Wilkinson, King 5 News. Darrington is here where I am in western Washington, 30 miles to the nearest drugstore. That is a long trek for Ozempic, right? And then specifically those independent grocery stores, uh, those typically you have more of those in areas where black and non-white people are forced to reside. White people have better access to more of the big chain grocery stores or then they can pay less money for the drugs as well. But the independent stores closing, that would be lots of those in areas where non-white people, black people reside. I included Neely Fuller there. Now, I could have, it's bunches of times where Neely Fuller has talked about this. We got one, him talking about this with the DC riding, Dr. King. Got two, him talking about this, Freddie Gray, two times, uh, where they burned down the CVS, which I don't think reopened. And he said the same thing, seen this before. Just means exactly what she said. Now you got to go out to the suburbs to get toilet paper, get your prescription filled. White people may allow that. Maybe they don't. Maybe you have transportation to get out there. Maybe you don't. Could be 30 miles, too. (laughs) Anyway, I was reminded it was that context where Fuller said for years, I guess some people have said, you know, Fuller, you should have health. That's important. You're nine areas of people activity and you left it out. You coon, blah, blah, blah. Even some of our listeners, VGQ, you can add, you know, make it 10 big deal. He has said, and this is the context why I was reminded of that. He said, Hey, I'm in charge of you. I decide whether you can buy a bandaid. Then you can complain that they don't have nigger colored mandates, but whatever. I decide if you can buy band-aids. I decide if you can buy pampers. You have to come to me to even get a drugstore or a grocery store. If that is the case, I got your health. Fuller even added that health encompasses everything. Economics, education, all of that. You get to the 12th grade and you are illiterate you are unhealthy bold face print anyway that report that I just played where they talked about the middlemen so called where they get to decide who's going to be in the network that Dr. Cato mentioned and all the rest of it how many of those folks do you think are classified as black telling them this is what the price of Ozempic is going to be. Hmm. 
she said 85% of the clinical pharmacists classified as white that would lead me to believe probably most of those folks middle men middle women why do they even have that the middle person why do they say that you know sexist and such the middle middle people they are white anyway the report uh, that she had in the footnotes that I thought was important variation in drug prices at pharmacies then we'll nab some of the folks who get their thoughts on Dr. Cato's details variation in drug prices at pharmacies are prices higher in poorer areas I thought this was important as well because I had never heard this I'd heard this in the context of uh, like groceries and such before but like whoa like they have data that even the Ozempic costs a little bit more where the Negras stay at I'm not going to read the full report but just uh, a teaspoon of it oh, oh wait a minute wait a minute okay this is a teaspoon if drug prices were higher for the poor non-white people then disparities in medical care could be exacerbated small studies in New York have suggested that pharmacy prices in lower income areas may be higher than prices in wealthier areas beyond pharmaceuticals prior studies of price variation in the United States have found that for a variety of goods and services poorer individuals often face higher prices than those who are wealthier white people lower income families often pay higher insurance premiums and face higher interest rates for mortgages and other loans grocery stores in poor neighborhoods tend to be smaller and more expensive than in wealthier neighborhoods and this effect may be mediated by the relative preponderance of independent grocers rather than chain supermarkets in poor neighborhoods all extensively footnoted scooting down a little bit further oh, 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 there we go okay our findings on the differences in price between chain and independent pharmacies suggest a potential mechanism for geographic price variability in prescriptions that deserves further investigation the preponderance of independent high-cost pharmacies in poor areas explains much of the observed variation in price much as the presence of small high-priced grocery stores explains in many cases the higher price of groceries in poorer areas however despite higher mean prices among independent pharmacies the poorest areas also contain some independent pharmacies with similar prices to those charged by chain pharmacies this finding suggests that even in the poorest zip codes motivated consumers who shop around can find independent pharmacies that are as inexpensive as chain pharmacies because the, ab the ability of consumers to compare prices may be more limited in economically deprived settings where finances health literacy and transportation are barriers interventions to assist consumer choice could be warranted if large numbers of the uninsured purchased prescriptions at high prices I thought that was important because I do think you have lots of non-white people who do have low health literate <laughs> scratch out the word health I just said you do not qualify for health if you get to the 12th grade and are illiterate. 
that right there is going to, you certainly are not going to be efficient at shopping around to compare drug prices if you don't read very well. Thank the white women teachers for that one, too. Anyway, that alone, I think, would get lots of folks and hostile, racist, white health practitioners, Mike Swango and the rest. That also would be a contributor. Racist, hostile pharmacist to boot. Even Paul's, remember Tops? White pharmacist got shot. She didn't get killed, but got shot. She wasn't even supposed to be there that day. She was filling in. White race soldier goes to kill black people at a grocery store in a predominantly black area and ends up accidentally shooting the white pharmacist. Even at a Negro grocery store, they do not have a Negro pharmacist. Duh. I don't remember anybody there saying, we had this old cracker pharmacist here and man, I wasn't even going to get my prescription for you. I needed my insulin, but I died before I let some old whitey pharmacist put something in. I've never heard that. Anywho, uh, before I nab folks who dialed in, oh, we took about 30 minutes, maybe not 30, about a good 10 or so on the racial classification component. Oh man, I am so glad that we did. If you haven't seen what Dr. DiMacato looks like, uh, check online. You can do a search and all that good stuff. D-I-M-A. Cato. Q-A-T-O. U-S-C. O.J. Simpson. Uh, you can see what she looks like. When I saw her originally, she has her hijab on, right? The head wrap. She says she's Muslim. Man. I said, whoa. She looks like a white person. Hmm. Hmm. I looked at the name. Everything's like, hmm, I don't, what, what? And so she heard all that born in Palestine, right? Got all that conflict happening in this part of the, or that part of the world and reverberating around the universe and Middle Eastern. And she said, she checks the box, boop, classified as white. Now she said she doesn't think that she benefits from so-called white privilege. This is a tenured scholar at the University of Southern Cal. People lie, white people lie, cheat, bribe white people millions of dollars just to go to school at USC. Rental James. You are tenured. University of Southern Cal. A clinical pharmacist. Do you know how much money they Oh my God. That sounds like a, at least, what is it? at least maybe a half teaspoon of white power. Anywho, all of that, she says she checks the white box. Man, Palestine is not a racial classification. Someone tells me that they're Palestinian. I will remember this program. That is not a racial classification. Middle Eastern, that is not a racial classification. These are geographic locations. Arab, Fuller said for years, like, I don't even know what that means. Like, what? 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 Not a racial classification. White. Got it. Racist suspect, and we'll move from there. If folks got to see a picture of her, let me know what you would think, particularly when I asked, so is it accurate to say that I'm talking to, you are classified as a white woman, Middle Eastern, Palestinian, 
Arab, and we did get buckets, but she said, yes, it seemed with some anxiety. Racist suspect, you said white, thank you kindly. And again, this is not Gus's obsession. It is, hey, we are in a system of white supremacy racism, and we have racial classifications around the world. No one is more obsessive about these classifications than the people classified as white. They do squabble about who's classified accepted as white. We've had a few folks on the program who said that they from time to time might encounter a racist who says, no, I do not think that you're white for whatever reason, but that doesn't seem to be an all the time thing like myself. Anywho, that at the pharmacy aspect important, but racial classifications always important. Last thing I'll get in that portion at the end where she said the black people in Chicago didn't even know about the racism with regards to their access to pharmacies and then the distance that they have to travel and the price that they have to pay. White people, I'm sure, are very aware of the, the so-called middlemen, middle women. Dr. Cato knows. She says she helped with the research. She knows. That would be another one. Who is more informed about all of this? And even within that, she still pivoted back to that the non-white people, the ones who experience it, all that. No, man, you already said at the beginning, the people, she said, in fact, it wasn't that they just suddenly arrived in the so-called pharmacy desert. It's been like this for a decade, probably way longer. I wrote 10 years ago about uh, they were talking about the Obama library going in Chicago. It was black residents. Pamela Evans Harris, the late was one of them. I quoted her in the report where she said, man, we need a trauma center. Y'all talk about black on black crime. Well, when Leroy gets shot, we don't even have a hospital for him. We don't need a library. Can we get a hospital? Let me get to that later. Hush up. White people, I'm sure, know that too. Not ignorant about white supremacy racism, not by a long shot. Anyway, see how many of those gun metaphors they got? Son of a gun, long shot. Oh, my God. Stick to your guns. It's endless shooting, 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 shooting. Why would that be in a system of white supremacy racism? Hmm. Let's see. Folks who dialed in thoughts uh, from Dr. Cato, the pharmacy closure or whatever else. The uh, note, uh, if you dialed in, line should be open. Hello, Mandy Harris. Yes, ma'am. Okay, so I was going to, I'm sorry, I missed the broadcast itself within a few weeks, um, but I was thinking as y'all was closing about my experience thinking about how drugstores are another version of um, corner stores and bodegas and 
how I've seen liquor sold at the so-called pharmacy, you know, if that thing to be oxymoronic. And uh, I just wanted to ask, did you hear, I think it was Florida, there was a young girl, black female child that was given two, an adult dose of a COVID vaccine and it made her very sick. Um, but the way they found out was because right when she was about to get sick or she was becoming sick, excuse me, the pharmacy called her parents and said, hey, we gave her an adult dose, but they wouldn't disclose the milligram or whatever, the CC, I, I guess that's what it would be, right? And um, they refused to disclose some other stuff as well. And, you know, that's just another aspect of racism, white supremacy, the pharmacy that I know of in recent history. And one other thing, I was curious as to what the procedure once a pharmacist is alerted to possible medical malpractice. Um, so, okay, so there was a lady at, at Walgreens and she was in a lot of pain and she started talking about something that had happened to her during childbirth or what should have been childbirth, but it, she had a C-section. And whatever she told this white female um, pharmacist, she said, oh, they shouldn't have released you then. And I looked at her, and then she looked at me. I didn't know why she looked at me. I know why I looked at her. So part of me wanted to ask, okay, well, you know, what are you going to do now that she's told you this? But instead, I asked, well, what should she do now to, you know, rectify this issue? And she didn't know what to do. And I was like, that's interesting because when you're in school, and you hear about abuse or an allegation of abuse, you're a mandated reporter. So I would think there would be some type of mandation to report medical neglect or malpractice, or at least tell a person how to report for themselves something. So I wish I could have been on the line to ask her that. I don't know if that's in the book. But that's what I wanted to share, basically. And uh, thank you. I'm much obliged. I'm not sure if Dr. Cato, clinical pharmacist, uh, she maybe she would know the procedure in terms of what you know uh, reporting and all of that. I can say from Dr. Swango, uh, not being a pharmacist but still being in the medical profession, that is a big theme of the book uh, that white people in the medical industry and the lack of what she said the lack of accountability when they make an error deliberate or no sometimes you have a whoops but the lack of accountability uh, in terms of reporting acknowledging even if it was an honest mistake that which this could have been um, to report all that hey we gave you know an adult dose uh, to a child let's report date time where did this happen? Blah, blah, blah. All this. Maybe they have information on, you know, to make sure that she's okay. Uh, and then to make sure this doesn't happen again. All that good stuff. It seems to be that that is a widespread problem uh, for white medical practitioners, uh, which why we end up having Lucy Letby, Michael Swango, and 
on and on and on that lack of uh, accountability uh, I'm pretty sure this was a white pharmacist just based on what our guest said but yeah I don't know would have been interesting to see if she uh, Dr. Cato if she you know knew about any procedure where to report all of this is there a governing body where you can go to and say that this happened at the pharmacist because I'm sure they you know you can't just be all that's supposed to be regulated like you can't just be giving out random doses or random amounts of pills and messing up what you're supposed to give and that sort of thing like all oh, that's supposed to be very strictly controlled codified exact so they have all the licensing and such you have to go to school and they don't just let anybody be a pharmacist much obliged uh, Irie hope the uh, young person turns out to be alright uh, she even talked about that though uh, our guest in terms of pharmacists in areas where black people live are less likely to even have immunizations uh, and such she included that in her data which I was like dang even that in the context of COVID like dang uh, other folks who uh, dialed in do you have commentary to share greetings everyone retired firefighter in Florida that's where they carried out the test about the higher prices of medication in so called poor areas where non-white people live it was in the state of Florida hmm. I think I when I as the program was going on, I was looking up some things, and uh, I think they said uh, Orlando uh, has the most hospitals, something like that. Uh, but anyway, uh, I saw a, I saw a picture of what I think is the guest on your program. Uh, for some reason, it, it hit me in the head uh, that uh, she looks like a uh, younger version of the famous uh, drawing of Mona Lisa. Uh, She looks like a a white female uh, to me. Uh, uh, I guess, I guess the distinction of her hair color is identified as brunette. I could be wrong, but it's dark color hair. Uh, but she looked like a white woman. Uh, if that's a, if if I was looking at the the same person, uh, I just put in her last name and and put in pharmacist at USC. So that kind of like narrows it down. <laughs> and uh, uh, so I think that's the person that I was looking at that was guess on your program. Uh, pharmacy uh, pharmacies in Miami Gardens. Uh, I would say that it's probably is not a drastic problem, uh, being that, uh, there, there is two of them, uh, in walking distance of me. Uh, and I stay in the, uh, Northwestern part of Miami gardens. Uh, there is, there is one that I know of that is uh, northeast of me, northeast of the Dolphin Stadium. Uh, And it is at least one or two more in the area. The issue that I have with the city of Miami Gardens is with the amount of people in Miami Gardens, there is no hospital no hospital at all. Uh, 
no trauma center, which is connected with a, a lot of hospitals, a trauma center. Uh, it is almost embarrassing that a Miami-Dade County fire rescue has to transport patients in the Miami Gardens area where I stay at, at least probably even further to Broward County, which is another County. Uh, at now I haven't, we haven't met the mayor yet, but he probably would tell us when I asked, when I, you know, I came on the program earlier and, and mentioned about this talk with the, the mayor, he probably would state that, where would you have a hospital at? I can't think of any any room, a space to have a hospital uh, right right now. I, and maybe I can think of 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 the area later on, but not right now. Uh, they have been doing a lot of building uh, within the last ten years around here, and uh, filled it up with stores and you know, retail stores of, of that type and that sort of thing. It used to be a space just south of the Dolphin Stadium uh, because that area was so vacated. Uh, people would get their their uh, dirt bikes and uh, the four-wheel four -wheel versions of, of those type of things and just have a, a field day all day long uh, speeding around in, in, in the area, uh, but now those, that, that area is, is clouded up with retail stores. And, uh, so I don't know exactly where, but it is needed. It is needed. I also would say that, uh, as far as I think I heard you mention some colleges, Florida A&M, uh, has produced thousands of black pharmacists in the state of in the state of Florida and I'm pretty sure they you know went other places other than the state of Florida uh and that's been going on before I was born uh way before I was born actually uh with pharmacists uh I did remember at at the drug, one of the drug stores that I go to I asked the pharmacist what college she went to and I think she said Florida A&M also, uh, uh, so, uh, the people, they, you know, they, they, it, 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 it's necessary that we have a hospital in this area. That's, that's all I have to say. Thank you. Same thing I just said about Chicago. Not surprised at all. I looked at, uh, the government U.S. census data online and, uh, Miami gardens in Florida, population over 100,000 uh, and they at least online yeah 111,000 I think they have about a little less than 20% white but they also have the uh, nefarious Hispanic uh, classification so you know who mm -hmm. knows you mm -hmm. probably got some white speaking uh, Spanish speakers uh, in that group I would suspect so it's probably well over 20% white according to the data of Dr. Cato once it starts to reach about 35% white people, you start to have more pharmacies. So with the number of so-called Hispanics and all in the area, you all might be at the threshold of that 35 where 
bang, then they're start. You're not going to have as many food deserts once you have a certain threshold of white people in the area. But the trauma center, like, dang, that that's the sort of thing where I think it's uh, deliberate because he said Orlando. They have lots and lots of hospitals. And I think a lot of people move to a lot of people classified as white move to Florida to retire older population of white people. So certainly they're going to make sure they have all the nurses and drug stores and hospitals and everything else so that they can stay around and get some sun and skin cancer until, you know, they're 90, 100, however long they can, you know, hang out in the sun, get their sunscreen and all. Um, but yeah, that is not for the Negros in Miami gardens. Like you gotta be, they wouldn't even give them uh playgrounds. Like they put a, put the playground under the overpass. There, there, there we go. The Negro children have fun under the underpass there. Don't mind the noise. Yes. He did say a uh, retired firefighter that he checked our guest. Dr. Cato said he looked at her photograph, said, I think this is a brunette white woman. And she even told us that she has blue eyes. Uh, she didn't tell, she didn't tell us her hair color. She said blue eyed white woman. Um, that's what I said. Uh, white woman, they do have brunettes. That doesn't mean that you're not white. Uh, they might, I guess, you're not as cool as a blonde, maybe, but you could even get hair coloring. So, you know, um, yeah, I think racist suspect. Uh, and if anything, that was important for me to remind. Hey, you could be classified as white and be a so-called Muslim. That's the same thing. You could be classified as white and say you're so-called Jewish. You say that you're so-called white and say that you're so-called Christian. You say that you, you could be classified as white and be so-called Palestinian. You could say you could be classified as white and say that you're so-called Middle Eastern. You could be classified as white, speak Spanish and be so-called Latino, Latinx, Hispanic, whatever else they want to add at the end of the day. Accepted, classified, are you able to function as a white woman, white man. Bang, even after some effort, yes, I'm accepted as a white person. Okay, I was even thinking like, hey, have you ever practiced racism? Or even been accused of practicing racism? See what she says, but yes, uh, other folks, if you look at the archives or what have you, let me know. Even even that, have other folks, have they uh, encountered white people who are, say that they're Muslim? Because that might, you know, throw some place. It's a female and she's got the hijab and all of that. Or they might even have a so-called Arab, Middle Eastern sounding name. Dr. Cato, Dima Cato, full name, Dr. Dima Cato. They might have, you know, kind of a, won't be Susan won't be tad that type of a thing like whoa what's i don't know if other people have encountered that but man uh jewish arab middle eastern latino these are not racial classifications very important let me see anybody else comment here they want to make sure they get in gus minister malcolm <laughs> mentioned about 55 years ago when he made his pilgrimage he met a lot of white Muslims. He he's he's mentioned that in a, in a, in in a speech uh, years ago when he went to uh, Mecca. He met a lot of white, quote unquote, Muslims. Blue eyed, blonde hair. 
took the words out of my mouth, blue-eyed. I did not that I had remembered that uh, Minister Malcolm talking about the uh, white Muslims in Mecca while he was on his uh, Hajj pilgrimage. Um, but yeah, once you jogged my memory, like, oh, that's right, is that blue-eyed white brother and we prayed and all the rest of it. Absolutely, we read that in the book club, uh, two thousand. 15, yeah, I guess for victims guaranteed qualified El Hajj Malik Shabazz, but many people do cite that as he, he didn't think all white people were racist. He said he had white brothers and sisters and all the rest of victims guaranteed qualified. Uh, I would say do not be dismayed if they should grab a head wrap, change of name, uh, a sorry anything you can think of uh oh my i forgot we had a mem a white member of the nation of islam as a guest on the pro oh, man man 15 years that is uh way back year one we did have white female member of the nation i think she even gave us the old uh asala oh man i can't Anyway, yeah, you cannot be. Then I re, even with her, even was that Dorothy Fardon? I think that was Dorothy Fardon. I have to go back to make sure I got the name right. But oh man, she even I think Justice was with us then. So many non-white. That white sister is down. She was. She knew all about Minister Malcolm and called him El Haj Malik Shabazz and was <coughs> excuse me quoting Minister Farrakhan and. All the rest of Elijah Muhammad, she said, honorable Elijah Muhammad, and blah, 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 and, and yes, indeed, the white devil, and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> man, woof, even her, white woman, racist suspect, uh, these are not racial class, someone being a Muslim, okay, are you classified as white, Middle Eastern, okay, are you classified as white? Era and it just goes right on to Latino. Okay. Are you classified as white? And then you can just even, they might lie. You can have suspicion if warranted, but man, that is so important again, because I think a lot of folks would just assume if you say you are so-called Palestinian that, oh, you've got to be a non-white person. Maybe, maybe not. You certainly have someone who is classified as white who happen to be born there, certainly. People who are classified as white go wherever they want to. You could have a white man, white woman, be in Palestine, have her give labor, and bang, this person would be a so-called Palestinian. Any hoodles, white people do the classifying. Very important to keep that in mind. Say that twice. White people do the classifying. Before I neglect with regards to the pharmacies that is so important one that would be even more reason when they talk about stem this would be another field encourage black people to go into uh, pharmaceuticals there will be racism white supremacy that's even branching off from you know folks in med school you know if you don't want to do surgery and all that or be a little bit more hands off and you can fight against racism pharmacist that is so needed you can talk they talked about health literacy where you can actually talk to a black person and explain things to them as opposed to just treating them like a no count crackhead get on out of here 
that right there work against white supremacy racism pharmaceutical and then you can even tell us yes Gus T the middle woman middle man they're white duh but that would be one and uh, one try to pass around that information not all pharmacies charge the same if you live in an area with a high population of black people and or a low population of people classified as white you might do better to shop around if you have to get pharmaceuticals if that's you have older relatives and such and they're on medications you might share that with them they overcharge negras at the pharmacies maybe let's go check to some of the other stores they included in their research now some of the stores drug stores in the areas where it's lots of black people not too many white people some of the stores did offer regular prices that were cheaper than these racist overinflated prices but you had to shop around that might be good too it might not be a situation where you have to travel 30 miles or something of that nature but it just might be one where you have to call around or whatever in the area to find out like oh okay it's a little bit cheaper over here let's switch up grandma let's go over here and get that filled you can save some money and I mean that adds up quickly if you have to go and do this every month that adds up really quick definitely if it's something where it's way cheaper down the road maybe that can even be worked out I was going to say you could get folks to maybe carpool that could be one way of counter racism if if somebody goes in this direction anyway you can do a little carpool get their medication I guess that is serious I mean codifying you can certainly use your phone to take pictures and text all that communicate to make sure that everything is you know straight they got phones and all that so that would be one constructive use uh, of the smartphone and then as I said if you're going to be traveling out or for people who do have transportation access bang and that hopefully would be once a month I guess some people have to do their prescriptions a little more but if it can be a once a month thing go make that trek save them some coins because uh, I did not know that and what she said apparently many of these black people victims of white supremacy they didn't know this either not coincidence not accidental dedication to white supremacy racism make sure I get that in as well at the beginning of the broadcast when I as always give my definition for racism she said a system exists uh, she said I, I don't know that I think every white person is in this and you know by that definition I am definitely not white I think we've had some uncomfortable snickering there she seemed she even acknowledged that she was a little uncomfortable by all of that that I'm noteworthy uh, like I before I had a code a more accurate logical grasp of white supremacy racism what it is how it works what it means to be classified as white I don't remember white people being all nervous I just don't remember that they talked to me like I was some sort of a joke or what have you you know anyway particularly around such a simple question are you classified as white you've marked forms and such I have you live in this part of the world even anywhere really anyway that that is so noteworthy because nowhere in the definition does it say everybody that word conscious isn't there either but so frequently white people they process the logic that oh man 
Oh, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. What does it mean to be white? And the excusing, well, wait a minute, on that basis, now nah, I am not a white person. Eh. I'll retain my suspicions. Uh, yes. <laughs> and even that might be worth a rewind. Listen to the exchange around is she classified as white? Man, and pay attention to her emotional response uh, in all of that. Fascinating. Anywho, um, we will be here on Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, education, NBA specifically. We've talked about this subject matter before. Looking forward, white guests only as we move further into November. Uh, listener-supported counter-racist radio. Hit the blog if you think the cows is constructive. Uh, the blog address racism-notes.blogspot.com. You'll see the PayPal button, uh, upper right corner. Uh, you'll see the links for Cash App, PayPal, Venmo. Much obliged for all the folks who've kept us on the air 14-plus years at this point hopefully worthy of your time and energy. Uh, hopefully share this with other victims of racism. Uh, man, they, we are in such an unhealthy environment. I think Dr. Welsing, she said so frequently that no victim of white supremacy qualifies for mental health. I think that would be true for physical health too. That's why Fuller says your health is, you know, all encompassing. That being the case, there are probably lots of us who are in poor health. That's by design. That's one way to think about, you know, what you eat, trying to make it as healthy as possible. Same way, talk about the so-called food deserts where I was saying, hey, carpool, better locations where you can get access to cheaper and better quality produce, foods save some money like I said carpool that way you don't have to consume all of that by yourself and even you can uh, share in the bulk items right so it doesn't have to be a you going to get a whole bunch of one thing that you're not going to consume individually right anywho um, but share uh, she said non-white people being not not being health literate certainly not being literate about what white supremacy racism is and how it works discuss share they have lots of news reports about the pharmacy closures and such the disparity in pricing even the disparity in distance and access to pharmacy pharmacies talk about that if you're gonna have offspring man that is an important conversation you can have dinner and talk about that how many pharmacies do we have in the area do we have a trauma center wow let's look at all that and we before we even get to having this child like man what what sort of health are we going to be bringing them into what sort of environment with regards to their health are they even going to have we're going to have to drive 30 miles to get diapers anywho we didn't miss anybody everybody got their commentary in oh wait a minute uh, victim in New Jersey victim in New Jersey did you have commentary uh, sir they were talking about New York, also the so-called pharmacy deserts. Yeah, Gus. So um, I, I I got the notification late, but um, yeah. So being though, like I'm in New York, there's definitely a difference, and I noticed. Um, so if you go to Manhattan, you know what I'm saying, which is you know 
more influent. I mean, there's like there's there's like pharmacies like as many you know what I mean they they're they're plentiful. You know what I mean, like Starbucks, Dunkin' Donuts, what have you. Um, the more you go to the Bronx, you don't see it. And and I mean just listening to the commentary from you and I have to listen to the playback to listen to the guests, I never I never thought of it like that. And I always wondered why when I was in Manhattan, I'm like, why is there so many pharmacies? Dwayne Reed. Like every like every other block there's a Dwayne Reed, you know, and I was just wondering why. Like why is there so much of an abundance of pharmacies? So now that I'm thinking about it, I just thought about the Bronx and when I go up there, you know what I mean, I don't see as many pharmacies. As a matter of fact I don't even see as many um, you know, fruit markets. You know, where you have, you know, um, you know, um, abundance in like fruit. You have more bodegas where, you know, you can get your Cheetos and your, you know, and your hot, you know, and get your high fructose sodas and um, things of that nature. And even, uh, uh, even the pricing. I wanted to she talk about the pricing because I didn't realize how expensive uh, medicine was. You know, I, I kind of took it for granted. When I was when I injured myself and my being though I was on workman's comp, my job insurance um, I didn't have it anymore. It only lasted for maybe about a month, and so I was out of while I was on workman's comp. I didn't have insurance. Only had it for about two months. And victim from New Jersey, I had an issue that was outside of my knee injury. And I went to, you know, give them my pharmacy card, and they said, no, you know, it expired. So I'm like, okay, well, you know, normally I would probably pay $10 for a prescription, and it was about 60 pills, and I had a toenail fungus, and it was $60, you know, and I'm like, wow, I really didn't understand. And you guys also talked about, is it Ozempic? So my father, heavy, you know, he's sick, so he's on a lot of medication. Ozempic is one of the medications that he's on. So, I mean, hopefully victims of white supremacy would, won't even have to consume so much medicine, you know? So, you know, I mean, my grandmother never had a drink of liquor in her life, but one of the medications that she's on, you know, um, gave her um, cirrhosis of the liver. So just the pricing of medicine. And I just never thought about um, when we talk about food deserts and just, you know, when it comes to pharmacy, you know, pharmacy deserts. I mean, that's, I mean, wow, that's, that, that, that really blew my mind, uh, my quotes. It's quite mind-blowing. Um, we did. That's in the archive. When you listen to the uh, download stream, uh, we did talk about the report, uh, give the title, just because I didn't, I'd never heard of it myself. The, oh, there we go. Variation in drug prices at pharmacies are prices higher in poor areas 
I did not know anything about that, but yes, they even charged the niggers more, and particularly Ozempic is so expensive. We had specific reports talking about that <clears throat> on some of the previous compensatory call-ins, so I am sure for that one, like, oh man, we are sticking all of the black people. That that might even be a drug specifically, uh, where if you have to take Ozempic, I would check around. That might be one where it's worth it to go and see what does this cost at the pharmacy where the white people live versus what does this cost where we live on the dark side of town I suspect there would be a substantial difference and that's one if you got to take that monthly like oh yes that would be worth the time to check either locally is there a difference in price or where that white pharmacy is is there a difference staggering but yes we talked about that in the uh, archives again that's why it's you know that all of that is intended uh, Dr. Judith and Layson obesogenic environment we don't have the uh, as he said the, the farmers markets and such we don't get all the great fancy grocers she talked about that in her research too uh, with the healthy organic produce that is reasonably price. we don't get all that we get the Cheetos high fructose corn syrup root beer Fritos all that the, the Twizzlers oh yeah we got it because it's Halloween yeah yeah get all that in uh, which sets you up now I need the Ozempic got all this extra weight and diabetic and wee and that one is super expensive I mean man yes health what you eat that is our counter racism get that exercise get your water in in, don't be sedentary talked about that things that we can do try so much of this is uh, preventive and starting these habits for young children modeling these habits for young children and other non-white people to see taking care of ourselves as best we can so that we can try to minimize having to be on all these medications and, and given the Michael Swango's opportunities uh, to terrorize and abuse us once we get into these white hospitals but definitely check around for the medication uh, pricing. Uh, let's see. Think nabbed everybody. Hopefully, worthy of your time and energy. Uh, I had uh, contacted Dr. Cato some time back about being a guest on the program, and there was a delay in her responding, so it was a little bit of short notice. I think that was why some of the folks said that they didn't get notification that we were on live until later. Uh, I didn't even say anything about this on the program this past weekend because I wasn't aware. Um, I was, you know, thinking I might have to remind her and such. And then, bam, heard back from her uh, that right at the end of last week that, yes, Monday, November 13 will work. Let's do it. Uh, hopefully, constructive uh, information. We'll be here on Wednesday. Uh, education, second area of people, activity. Wednesday, same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, white guests only. Hopefully worthy of your time and energy this Monday. Sobriety would be best. That right there, that right there. Take care of ourselves, modeling quality health as best we can. Those drugs can't, some of them, many of them, they can do a job. That's why they have all those 
uh, side effects where they take up half the commercial, like might cause your eyeballs to fall out, your kidneys to be inflamed, and esophagus to be irritated. Like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> come on, come on. Solve problems without creating new problems. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling no gossiping no throwaway black people cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim no brother problem. you're a victim i'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my conditioning Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>